Father, I pray that you would use your word now to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Where it's needed, Lord, I pray that our guilty consciences would bring us to our knees to see that we need a Savior desperately. Lord, I pray for individuals this morning that just feel like they won't withstand any longer. As the evil one accuses them, Lord, I pray that the blood of the lamb will be a shield. I pray for believers this morning that are struggling with unwarranted guilt and shame. Remind them, Lord, of Christ's atoning work that is more powerful than their sin is condemning. I pray for individuals here this morning, Lord, that do not know Christ. Oh, Lord, would you let the conviction of sin rest upon them like a ton of bricks so that they would experience the life-giving nature of grace to then lift it off of them because of what Christ has accomplished. This is a work, Lord, that only you can do. And I can speak and I can pray, but Lord, I'm asking that you work in the power of your spirit and let this word fall where it needs to on each of our hearts. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. I read an article this week telling this true story. The treasurer picked up a package on his way into the church building. He was the one who resided over the incoming mail at the local Holy Trinity Catholic Church located in Hastings, Germany. He began sorting through all the mail and finally he put all the other things down and he took the package and he opened it. And in the package was a Bible. But it wasn't a new Bible. It was, it was quite old in fact. And on top of the Bible, there was a letter from an anonymous writer. And the letter said, quote, this Bible has always brought me a guilty conscience. I was too cowardly to hand it over personally. Now I am retired and I make a final impulse to clear my conscience. I deeply regret what I did and can only hope this Bible finds its rightful home again. Of course, the treasurer thinks, well, what's the story behind this Bible? And why did it weigh on someone this much? They were a newly married couple, 1971, Germany. Neither one of them knew English very well and so they decided to learn English as a second language. They would go to this local Catholic church that was offering English courses. Even though the course was very expensive, they thought it will be worth it to teach us the second language. And so the couple went, they took the English classes. Both were very disappointed 
as the class proved completely unable to help them learn English, very unhelpful in its endeavors. And so at the end of the course, the young man sitting in anger for wasting so much of his money on what appeared to him to be a scam, he looked over and saw a few Bibles stacked under a bench, gorgeous Bibles. And so in his mind, if this church can't give me what I paid for, then I'm gonna get my money's worth somehow. And so the Bible under the bench became the Bible under his coat and he walked out. And he kept the Bible. He never really read it, even though his wife was angry for him for taking it. He kept the Bible for 42 years. And as he admits, those 42 years were filled with grief, guilt, shame, wearing his conscience out. And as he writes in the letter, now toward the latter part of the end of his life, he was finally looking to a way to clear his conscience for a way that he could finally rest easy again in his final days. What did the man suffer from? A guilty conscience. Is there anything worse than a guilty conscience? The uneasiness of a guilty conscience has led many individuals down dark roads into despair as they try to hide what they did in their past to cover something they're deeply ashamed of. It's the uneasiness of a guilty conscience that keeps you up at night. It takes away your appetite or it increases it all the more. It sends knots into your stomachs and a desert into your throat. It weighs on you like you are the axis for which the world sits upon. It drags on your feet like you're in quicksand. It sets you on edge as you wonder, does she know? Does he know? How did they find out? The guilty conscience, it's like having chains wrapped around your body that keep tightening a bag over your head and you're placed into a tank closed and it's filling with water. Anyone feeling claustrophobic? You just take a deep breath and you just wanna be free from it, right? Whew, like get it off of my chest. Have you ever had a guilty conscience? Maybe you have one this morning. I suspect some of you do. I suspect my words already have you looking at your watch. When is he gonna be done? The guilty conscience is exactly what we see on full display in our text this morning. Look at Genesis 42 starting in verse one. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with, with his brothers for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him and their faces to the ground. 
Joseph said he saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I have said to you, you are spies. By this, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether the truth is in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so that your, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And so they did. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept and he returned to them and spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Verse 25, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the, sack of his, in, the, in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what has this God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them saying, the man, the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, son of our father. One is no more. The youngest is to this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land said to us, by this, I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you, shall, and you shall trade in the land. Verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle, bundle of money was in a sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, 
Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm happened to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Chapter 43, now the famine was severe in the land and when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with us. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions, could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and all our little ones. I will, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back you, to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. Verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. If you've been tracking in this story of Joseph over the last few weeks, where we ended last week might have felt like a good ending. All is well, perhaps. Joseph is experiencing exceedingly great wealth. Even though his brother sold him into slavery, everything seemed to have worked out. No one needs to know. He turned out fine. He's in top command now in Egypt. His brothers are back home. All is well that ends well, right? Well, not exactly. How long do the brothers think that they'll get away with what they did? Are they just planning to take it to their graves? It's been over 20 years at this point. If nothing has come of it by now, will it ever? Does anything ever need to come of what we did 20 years ago? Just let sleeping dolls lie, as the saying says. And maybe we got away with it. Is this what the brothers think? Well, remember how the narrative ended last week? The entire world is in a global famine, just as Joseph said would happen. And at the end of that chapter, chapter 41, verse 57, it says, all the earth came to Egypt to buy, to Joseph to buy grain because famine was severe all over the earth. And when it says all the earth came to buy grain, who does that include? Who also is experiencing the pains of this famine? That's right, it's Joseph's brother and the rest of his family. 
just like everyone else. And so what happens? The first, fir- the first five verses of chapter 42 set, I'm sorry, chapter 43 set the stage for us. Verse one, Jacob, like all the other families, is wondering how he's gonna provide for his family. And as he hears it, he hears that Egypt has food they're selling. And in verse one, I find it kind of comical. He looks at his son and says, why do you look at each other? This is kind of like the dad that says, well, the work's not gonna get done just by looking at it, son. Or how do you expect to pay today with your looks? Well, son, you'll be waiting a long time. Get to work. Go to Egypt, buy some grain. Verse two, that we may live and not die. This was a life and death situation for them, literally. And we have a hard time grasping the seriousness of the famine that they're experiencing. We don't know of its reality on a personal level. I mean, we can drive around a building and they'll hand us food out a window. For them, they must find food or they're going to die. And so he sends his sons, but not all of them. Who does he keep back? Benjamin. Why? Because Benjamin's the youngest. And he remembers what happened last time he sent his favorite son on a journey to go with his brothers. Joseph didn't return. Jacob's not gonna risk Benjamin falling to the same destiny. Now think about this. In these first five verses, they're experiencing the famine, they're going to Egypt to buy food. What's the biggest problem? It's It's not a trick question. The famine is the biggest problem. If they don't find food, they're going to die. That, problems don't get much higher than that. And as they're in this problem, do you think a sin that they committed 20 plus years ago is going to be priority in their mind? Probably not. Past sin is probably not on their mind. Survival is on their mind. They have a lot to be concerned about with the famine. But here's the shocker of this story. The famine is not their primary focus, or at least it won't be soon. We're about to see these brothers deeply disturbed by a guilty conscience. And in the midst of life and death survival, what in the world could distract their minds from a famine? What could possibly disturb them so dramatically? And if this were a movie and we were watching it play out, you could begin seeing the plot thicken here. And think about it, they're in a famine. There's a leader down in Egypt who has food that we can go buy from and their dad sends them to Egypt. And by the way, the man who's in Egypt who is gonna sell the food is the brother they sold into slavery 20 plus years ago. And if the drama isn't clear enough about what's about to happen, verse six leaves no doubt. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people and we're thinking, oh my goodness. They're about to meet, aren't they? Like they're going to buy grain. He's the one who's selling it. They're gonna meet. After 20 years of not seeing each other, after 20 years of basically leaving him for dead, after 20 years of being in trial, despising his older brothers for doing so, they're gonna meet. It's a wonderful 
movie plot to be played out. Here's the thing, like, this is real life. This is actually happening. The brothers will soon be disturbed and they will be disturbed by their feeling the distress of their sin. This is why a guilty conscience is disturbed. First of all, because you feel the distress of sin. Why do you have a guilty conscience? And maybe, maybe some of you this morning, maybe when I say guilty conscience, it's like you feel like a spotlight's hanging over your head, like everybody knows, like it, I'm feeling it this morning. Why do you have a guilty conscience? Is there something that you know in the dark that scares you to death for being brought into the light? Verse six, the brothers come and what do they do? They bow down before Joseph. Now, why is that significant? Because remember Joseph's original dream all the way back in Genesis 37, seven, that he and the brothers are out in the field, right? He has this dream, he tells them about, hey guys, all of your sheaves of grain, they come and they gather around mine and they bow down to it. And the brothers are like, what are you saying? Are we gonna bow down to you? Get real dork, we're not, that's never gonna happen. See, what they hated him for, they're now doing. The dream is being fulfilled. They don't even realize it. Why? Because they can't recognize this Joseph. Verse seven says he recognized them, but they don't recognize him. Think about it. He's, he's decked out in Egyptian royal linen. He's probably clean shaven, right? They haven't seen him in over 20 years and this is the last place they think they're gonna see him if they ever see him again. Doesn't this feel like sweet justice? He suffered for 13 long years and now we're starting to feel the vindication right before them all. And the text says he spoke roughly to them. I mean, come on, admit it. If your brothers did this to you and then they come and bat on you, you're gonna stick it to them a little bit, aren't you? He speaks roughly to them. He remembers his dreams and how they treated him and, and now he's gonna mess with them. Verse nine, he says, you're spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, you've come to see where Egypt is vulnerable so that you can attack and steal our food. They say in verse 10 and 11, no, 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 my Lord, we are just your servants, just here to buy food. We are honest men. <laughs> honest men. Would you say these men are honest? I mean, sure, murderers, Simeon and Levi, yeah. Adulterer, Reuben, yeah. Impregnated his daughter-in-law, Judah, yeah. Schemers, all of them, yeah. But we are honest men. It's like saying Ted Bundy's honest for following the speed limit. He says no a second time in verse 12. No, you're just here to see the land. They emphasize more. No, really, we are 12 brothers from one father in Canaan. Our youngest one is back home with him. One is no more. And Joseph's like, wait a minute, what did you say? Your youngest brother is back home? See, Joseph knows what they do to younger brothers. 
And he doesn't know if they're telling the truth about Benjamin being back home. Or maybe you guys did to Benjamin what you did to me. And that's why he's not here. No, I don't believe you. Verse 14 and 15. No, you're spies. And here's how we're going to get it. The true test. You're not leaving this place until you bring your brother back and prove it. You're going to prove it. And all of a sudden, the brothers know (laughs) this is not a simple grocery store trip. Things just got a lot more pressured. Now notice the reverse parallel that's taking place in this story. And think about this. At first, they accused Joseph of being a spy. Way back when, remember? Oh, here comes Joseph. He probably just wants to spy on us to go tell dad. And now Joseph is accusing them of spying. See, first they sell him into servanthood. And now they're the ones who say, no, 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 we are your servants. First, they throw him aside like a stranger. And now it's Joseph speaking to them roughly like they are strangers. First, they throw Joseph in the pit where he is below them. And now it is them who, they who are bowing before him below him. First, he was the one begging for them to listen. And now they are begging for him to believe them. Isn't this sweet justice? So he puts them in prison for three days. He says, send one of you to go get your brother. The rest of you stay confined here. And just as Joseph was waiting in the pit while the brothers deliberated about him, now he deliberates while they're sitting in prison. But verse 18 and 19, it changes. It says that they've been in prison for three days. And Joseph comes to them with a new plan. He says, do this because I fear God. Now, this is important because now God's name is being brought up from this supposedly Egyptian official. It would have been odd, but that's not odd for Joseph, is it? This is the norm for him. Remember his God-centered worldview? Just like with Potiphar's wife, wait a minute, I can't do this. How can I sin against God? Just like with the prisoners, Don't dreams belong to God? Just like before Pharaoh, it's not me, it's God. And now just like here before his brothers, I fear God. This is the norm for him. So he says, instead of you going back to get your brother, I want you all to go and leave one brother here. If you bring your brother back, you can have your enslaved brother here. Surely there's some double meaning going on when it says that, right? And this is so wise from Joseph. Why? He knows his brothers are willing to leave one brother stranded. That's what they did to him. Will they come back if they all leave? And to make it more interesting, in verse 25, he gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to put their money back that they paid for with it. See, he is sending the brothers away with a bag full of money while a brother's left in in Egypt. Just like they did before, he's saying, let's see if they've really changed. Will they take the money and run and leave Simeon, who's back here? Now, here's where they feel the distress of their sin. 
I mean, they're in a hard spot. They begin to talk about it. Verse 21 and 22, they don't think Joseph can understand them. Look at verse 21 and 22 of chapter 43. Trying to find my place here. This is what happens when you deal with a really big text of scripture. (laughs) All right, I'm there. I beat you. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why we are in this distress now. And Reuben said to them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now they came, now now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You can hear the distress of their sin. What they're saying here basically is, look, let's be honest, we're guilty 20 plus years ago. And all this is happening because of what we did. They remember the disturbing details of him begging for them to stop. It's like they're saying to each other, you guys remember when he was screaming and begging for us to to listen to him? Do you remember the fear that we saw in his eyes? I've had dreams about this for years. I wake up in a cold sweat. Yeah, me too. I thought I was the only one. No, like this is why it's all happening. Their guilty consciences are about to beat out of their chest. And Reuben says, I told you, I told you not to do this, but you were just too stubborn. You just wanted the money and this is what you wanted to do. I told you not to. And now we're gonna have to pay with blood. See, they are distressed, not about the famine. They are distressed about the consequences they're facing because of their sin with Joseph. This is where sin leads you. Complete agony, complete distress, disturbed. Now or later, it will not stay hidden. And I'm not talking about misplaced guilt that's not your fault. I'm talking about true guilt that comes from a sin that you commit. Listen, out of the text, into the seat, where is God putting his finger this morning on a sin that's in the dark that needs to come to the light. What sin have you kept hidden for years that just distresses your soul and makes this sermon the most uncomfortable sermon you've ever heard? Oh, more than that, not just a sin, but maybe overall life. Like, you just feel like, man, I know, like, something's not right. I just feel completely distressed, and I know that I've done really bad things, said really bad things, thought really bad things. The word of God is sharp. It cuts deep. And if you feel cut this morning, just hang with me a second because the same word that cuts you restores you. Where it cuts, it also restores So hang with me 
for a few more moments. And see, so now they're in a real dilemma, which is where the distress of sin leads. And this is the second effect of a guilty conscience. You not only feel the distress of sin, but second, you experience the dilemma of sin. It puts you in a dilemma. What am I going to do? This is why every time you and I sin, we have a decision. What am I going to do about it now? I'm going to hide it. Am I going to expose it? And notice what happens. Verse 28. One of the brothers discovers that his money has been put back in his bag. The text shows their fear. It says their hearts failed them. They turn trembling to each other and they say, what has God done to us? Oh, now God's on their minds. Not before when they sold their brother into slavery, when he begged for his life, but now that the consequences have come, well, now they ask, what is God doing? In verse 29 to 34, they go home, they tell Jacob what's happened. They say, dad, we need Benjamin. This is the situation. We need him. He's not going to let Simeon go. He's not going to sell us any more grain until we go prove that Benjamin really is here. And while they're telling him this, they all see that their money is back in their bag now. So now the Egyptian leader will think they are spies and thieves. And Jacob says, absolutely not. Verse 36, you bereaved me of my children. It was first Joseph, then it was now Simeon. And now you want my Ben also? Absolutely not. And this wild detail in verse 37, Reuben in desperation says, please let us have him. If we don't bring him back, you can kill my two sons. <laughs> it's a nice try, but that is extremely irrational to say the least. Selfish at worst. Like why not, if I don't bring him back, you can kill me. No, 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 kill my two sons if I don't bring him back. That's crazy. Jacob says, no, it's done. And you can see their dilemma. What they're basically living in right now is they basically have stolen money from the most powerful man in all of Egypt in their bags. Their hearts have failed. They're, they're trembling before each other. They're afraid. They're blaming each other. Reuben is speaking irrationally. Simeon is captured. Joseph is gone. Benjamin is wanted. And Jacob says, no all in the middle of a famine. And it's a dilemma created by their own sin. If we think the brothers got off the hook for what they did to Joseph so many years ago, this text shows the exact opposite. They have not been absolved for that. Instead, the consequences have come and it leaves them in agony. This is what sin does. It leaves you in agony. Do you feel the agony of your sin this morning? Do you feel the dilemma like, what am I going to do? I wanna encourage you not to avoid that guilt. See, we live in a society where we avoid guilt at all cost. Drugs take it off our minds, drunkenness drowns it, food and television and entertainment and sex that distracts it. And we avoid all the silent moments of life because that's when this conscience screams the loudest. If you feel a guilty conscience because of your sin before a holy God, you feel like you're in the dilemma yourself and you're saying, what am I gonna do? What are you gonna do? 
Just hang on a little bit longer until I'm finally finished or just act like it's not there. Don't avoid the guilt this morning. Notice that the brothers have to look Joseph in the face. What sin, sins in your past do you need to look in the face this morning? Don't avoid it. When you look at it in the face, you can deal with it. And so that's the big question this morning. And we're coming to the final point here. How do you deal with it? What's the solution to a disturbance of a guilty conscience? And listen, for too long, the answer in the church has often been given, well, just stop doing it. Or you see how good he is over there? Be like him. Or see how good she is and how put together her life is? Be like her. Or stop thinking about it. Or just stop, stop, stop. Don't, don't, don't. That's too often been the answer given in the church. And it's not the answer that frees you from a guilty conscience. What is the answer? The answer to a guilty conscience is to be delivered from it, to be set free from it. Say, so well, how do I do that? Well, this is exactly where the text goes next. So they feel the distress of sin, they feel the dilemma of sin, and finally they will see the deliverance from sin. Now this is, we're only gonna get part of it this morning. Next, in two weeks from now, after Dr. Shriner preaches, we'll get into part B of it. But how do we see them being delivered from sin? This is how chapter 43 begins. The matter has been settled. You're not taking Benjamin back to Egypt. Don't talk about it anymore. And that only works until they're out of food again. Now they need more food. And verse two of chapter 43 says that Joseph sends them back to buy more, I mean, Jacob sends them back to buy more food. And in verse three through five, you can see Judah responds, hello, don't you remember? There's a man there. He won't sell his grain unless we bring back Benjamin. What do you expect us to do? And look at what the solution is given in verse nine. I will be a pledge of safety for him. Who said that? Judah. I will be a pledge of safety for him. If, if I don't bring him back, you can blame me forever. I take full responsibility here. Verse 13 and 14, Jacob says, fine, go. May God Almighty have grant you mercy. Now, I want you to catch this. We see a beautiful transformation happening in Judah's life here. Remember I told you to remember Judah? The one Judah, this is the man who led the charge to sell Joseph into slavery. As Joseph is begging for his life, Judah's probably the one saying, don't listen to him, don't listen to him, look at the money we have. Judah is the one that a whole chapter in Genesis 38 is devoted to that shows the sexual immorality of him lying with his daughter-in-law, impregnating her and then denying it. And so she calls him on the carpet for it and he says, wait a minute, she's more righteous than I am. It's this Judah saying, I'll be a pledge of safety for him. The Judah who first said of Joseph, let me profit from his slavery is now saying of Benjamin, let me pledge for his safety. 
Now, if you, if you haven't heard anything else, please hear the last couple of minutes of this sermon. That phrase, I will be a pledge of his safety. There are some lines in scripture that just stick out like a, a big toe, right? It's like, look at me, meditate on me, think about me. I will be a pledge for his safety. That's an important line. It's the same wording in Isaiah 38 where Hezekiah is on his deathbed and he cries out to the Lord, oh Lord, I am oppressed, be my pledge of safety. And throughout all of scripture, who is seen as the pledge of safety, the place of true safety and refuge? Is it not God? Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and he is safe. Psalm 4.8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 5.11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm 18, two, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And what does Judah say? The one who put himself first all his life? I will be a pledge for his safety. Now surely, brothers and sisters, we are meant to see the beautiful transformation happening in Judah, but surely more so, it must not be lost on us that the one saying this is the one of the line of Jesus who comes to provide more, a more full pledge of safety for the brothers and sisters. Where do we see Christ as our pledge of safety in Scripture? Now, this is why theology matters. In the Bible, the relationship between Jesus and his followers is described as being a union. Union with Christ. It's theological language. When one repents of sin, trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior, when one is justified and declared righteous by God, it is so because one has been united to Christ. There is a union that has taken place between this sinner and Christ and has dealt with the sin by the redemption Christ has offered. There is this union. The Bible uses language like abide in Christ become one with Christ, die with Christ, be raised with Christ, alive with Christ. And so how does this relate to finding safety in Christ? Well, I could take you to many verses, but I'd choose just one, perhaps the most simple one in showing this. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, hear this and exult in this great reality. For any of you today who have been cut, any of you today who sit in guilty conscience, you've felt the cutting of God's word, listen to what God's word says here to bring restorative effect to you. Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation considering eternal positioning in Christ, status, perception, your record before God, 
no guilt, no shame, no how dare you, no I can't believe you, No, I condemn you. No, you should be ashamed of yourself. No guilty conscience, none of it. Man, that sounds awesome. Who wouldn't want that? Like the weight is lifted off, no condemnation. And who is it for? Not everyone. It's not for everyone. Who's it for? Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are found in union with him. See, union with Christ provides safety for sinners needing to be sheltered from the wrath of God. It's far better than any human pledge. Jesus doesn't just simply provide shelter, he is shelter. He doesn't simply build a strong tower, he is a strong tower not just giving safety, he is our safety. Safety from what? I close with this, safety from what? As Jesus is suspended in the air hanging on the cross, it's the soldiers nailing his hands. And it's the crowds offering the mockery and the scorning and it's God the Father providing the wrath. Like a beam from heaven full of fury and justice landing right on the back of Jesus. That's what he provides safety from. Because where are we? <laughs> where are we? Either driving in the nails, calling from the crowd, or we're hiding under the arms of Jesus. Safe from wrath. We're under his chin as his head hangs, holding our shame. We're behind his back as he steps forward to be our surety. And he looks down, and his final words to us through agonizing pain is it is finished. What is finished? There is now no condemnation for those who are in me. No guilt, no shame, no how dare you, only freedom. <laughs> Jacob prays for God to grant mercy and God grants mercy by providing a pledge of safety for sinners. As I've held my children over the years in my arms, when they get scared, I can feel them tighten their clutch on around my arms. When something comes too close or when something is too loud, when they fear they're in danger, I can feel their grip just tighten. And some of you here, you're just covered in guilt and shame. And you don't know if you stood before God what you would do. You feel the dilemma of it. And if you were to die today, you would experience the wrath of God that came on Jesus. You would experience it for all of eternity. But listen, the distress for that sin, the dilemma created there, there is deliverance for it. And where's the deliverance? By clinging to Christ. For brothers and sisters in the room who know that freedom, there's some of you who no doubt deal with guilt for past things that you've done. 
And the evil one would love nothing more than to accuse you every day. You're not forgiven for that. There's no covering for that. Cling to Christ. Know that his pardoning work for you is more powerful than the accuser's condemning word. The one who accuses you, cling to the one who has pardoned you. There's your solution to a guilty conscience. There is only one final resting place in all the world and it's under the strong tower, the pledge of safety of Jesus Christ. Cling to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your gospel work has been happening in this service. Even in this prayer, Lord, I pray that you're lifting burdens, lifting guilt, lifting shame as sinners are turning to you in repentance and faith in Christ. Oh God, cause us to cling to him, to live in the reality of there's now no condemnation. Free people this morning, Lord, from living a bound up enslaved lifestyle to living in the freedom of Christ. Make your spirit blow in this place and accomplish these things as you will. I pray in Christ's name, amen.